0: Perhaps you should see it for yourself to really understand what went down during the civil rights era in America.
1: It was a dangerous time, but these students were masterful at the planning.
0: Coming up, we look at what the sites along the U.S. civil rights trail can tell us about the people who put their lives on the line and what it means to be a country where equal opportunity is more than a slogan.
2: Good things can happen if you work long and hard enough and try to get people to find common ground.
0: And naturalist Chris Morgan explains what it's like at one of the farthest corners on Earth. The fragile ecosystem of the Svalbard Archipelago in the Arctic offers a front-row view to the challenges of climate change.
3: It's one of my greatest pleasures is to take people to these places and firsthand inspire them and see the tears in their eyes and understand why these places are important that we all need to protect and care for. From the civil rights trail across the South to the top of the world, Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
0: The head of Alabama tourism tells us why the U.S. Civil Rights Trail is something every American should explore in just a second. And later in the hour, ecologist Chris Morgan tells us what his summer expeditions to the islands of Svalbard have shown him. For years, Chris has been investigating bear habitats in the U.S. and Canada, in Italy, and in the Norwegian Arctic he'll tell us what you'll find at the last stop before the North Pole. That's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. For decades, United States citizens watched as black Americans fought to dismantle segregationist policies and gain equal rights and protections under federal law. While the Civil Rights Movement was a series of peaceful protests, it was sometimes marred with violence. In the end... With the heroics of many brave people, it has affected great change. But we still have a long way to go in inspiring racial equity across our country. Today, we can visit sites of landmark monuments and moments of the civil rights movement all laid out on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. Joining us now to take us on a journey all along this historic trail and all across the South is the Director of Tourism for the state of Alabama, Lee Sintel his team was behind the campaign for the creation of the Civil Rights Trail. And he's authored a book about it, and the book is just an inspiration. Lee, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks. Glad to be with you.
0: What a great challenge to raise awareness. You know, uh, we have a big country, and for a lot of people, especially a lot of white Americans, it was just spectator um, time to kind of look at the whole movement and all of the ups and downs of it from a distance and now we have an opportunity to travel this. Why should, in your mind, these historic sites relating to this fight be something that people actually see in person? And, and what inspired you to write this book, The Civil Rights Trail?
2: Well, I think that the civil rights landmarks across the South should inspire people when they come to visit, because oftentimes what happened there was, uh, was moments of uh, great difficulty and tension and and danger, But that's what it took to get the attention of Congress Mm -hmm. to pass civil rights acts in the 70s and beyond.
0: Now, this started with the Alabama Civil Rights Trail, your state, and then it expanded to the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. How did that happen?
2: President Obama tasked the director of the National Park Service with creating more diversity in terms of national parks and UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So our office sort of took that on as a challenge when we saw that other organizations were not doing it, and we got Georgia State University in Atlanta to do a research project to find out how many sites would meet the minimum qualifications for UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and they came up with a list of about 60. And so I took that list of 60 to my counterparts, the Southern State Tourism Directors, and I said, nobody has ever had an inventory of civil rights landmarks, and we do now. So let's take this information from a very credible source and create the U.S. civil rights trail. As you said, Alabama had been doing civil rights on sort of low wattage, and we didn't invest a lot of money into it, but we were getting the attention of people in other states were curious and had been sort of watching what we were doing. And so the surrounding state tourism directors found additional sites in their states that they thought should be on such a list. And together, we came up, added to the 60 that the professionals found. And so we had about 120 sites. So when we launched it on MLK Day in 2018, that's when uh, we got a great deal of attention for the trail, Mm -hmm. not just for the, the sites individually. But that it is uh, it is a campaign and it is a collection
0: of landmarks that people should visit. And it's uh, you've put it together just so um, vividly in this book. the The photographs are great. the The writing is so crisp. I'm I'm wondering when I page through this book, you know, I'm parked way up here in Seattle, and this is a huge country, and you're right in the middle of this civil rights, um, the, the whole story, the movement, and the heritage. To what degree was this? Um, Politically challenging. I mean, I would imagine, you know, if President Obama wanted to do something, there are a lot of people that that would just kind of think, no, we don't want to do that. Um, to what degree was this a political issue, or or was there general consensus on this?
2: Actually, the project was started by the mayor of Birmingham, an African American. We were helping him a little by creating some a publication. I told our ad agency, Lucky to go find photographs of civil rights events from the historical footage, and then let's re-photograph those buildings today. Hmm. And they came up with a really amazing collection because Art Merpoole, the photographer who had been with Southern Living for 20 years, lined up the photos just perfectly so where it's a two-page spread, on the left side is the old black and white, and then the right side is what the building lo- looks like today. And it's just lined up with great precision. And so that's one thing. When people say, oh, you've got a great book, I say, yeah, we have great photos. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I just sort of wrote <laughs> around it.
0: Yeah, you just can't get, for instance, Linda Brown, the student uh, in Topeka at Monroe Elementary School, to go back and stand in front of her school as a grade schooler, but thank goodness there were photographs taken, and they weren't taken for a book. They were just, in a lot of cases, it seems taken on the fly during a lot of turmoil. And these photographs are historic treasures.
2: They really are. Where they were? They were shot uh, by news photographers. Nobody was planning a secondary use 50 years later for something like we've done.
0: Yeah. We're joined by Alabama State Tourism Director Lee Santel right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lee was an originator of the Alabama Civil Rights Trail, which expanded eventually into the U.S. Civil Rights Trail in partnership with the National Park Service. You'll find descriptions of the sites along the Civil Rights Trail at civilrightstrail.com. And Lee's illustrated book about the sites is called The Official United States Civil Rights Trail. You know, your book is called The Official United States Civil Rights Trail. Is that referring to the trail or the the book?
2: Well, uh, we were putting out a book called uh, The U.S. Civil Rights Trail. And uh, just as we were going to press, we discovered another book called uh, The U.S. Civil Rights Trail. Um, our book is inspirational. The other book, Diana Douglas did, is more of an if-you-go. I oh, mean, she tells you where to eat, where to stay. Oh, that's you know,
0: interesting because I, I was just looking at this and thinking, this is a virtual travel experience that you've given us with this book. I mean, I can sit here and read through it, and it's so vivid. It's not designed to tell me what time is this museum open but it's designed to tell me why this museum is important. And it really gives you a respect for this. Now, there's over 100 landmarks across 15 states, and in the book, it's structured in chronological order of the Civil uh, Civil Rights Movement timeline. But I'd like to go through this just really quickly in a kind of a, a road trip kind of fashion. So let's take a quick tour here, and we've got a lot of places to cover. But let's just start right off in Washington, D.C. What are the the main stops in Washington, D.C., where you could kick off this uh, educational road tour across uh, the south of America?
2: Well, for this book's purposes, it's the Lincoln Memorial, because that's where MLK did his big I Have a Dream speech. But he did not plan I Have a Dream. He had a totally different message that he was reading from and 12 minutes into that, Mahalia Jackson, who was a friend of his, and about four rows back, realized that his words were too fancy. People were not paying attention. And she just yelled out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. She was referring to a speech he gave two months earlier in Detroit. And King heard what she said and just calmly, if you look at video, he just calmly moved his script off to the side and transitioned into i'm looking forward to when one day when little boys and little girls you know that that phrase, yeah, so people now talk about what a great speech it was, but he did not finish the speech he started
0: i didn't realize that that is talk about speaking from the heart, he was speaking from the heart, and that's there's no better way to connect than when you put your notes aside and say what 's in your heart. The same thing is true with when he was in the
2: in the jail in Birmingham he wrote a letter from birmingham jail which is considered uh, the best argument for civil rights he was locked up in a cell with no artificial light and he wrote on a newspaper because there was an ad by moderate birmingham pastors who were basically saying mr king there's you should not be doing this 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 is not the time for that and that really annoyed him and so on that particular newspaper and on paper that his PR guys smuggled in later, mm-hmm. he wrote an argument that when typed up was 20 pages. And it's, uh, again, King, he was just just a learned man who, in the letter from Birmingham jail, he quotes philosophy, he quotes the Bible. I mean, it's just—
0: What a blessing to have him come along at the right time to, to move our nation forward. Absolutely. The Alabama State Tourism Director Lee Centel is with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lee's the author of a book filled with historical photographs about more than 100 sites in 15 states where what happened there changed our world. His book is called The Official United States Civil Rights Trail. Lee, let's carry on with our uh, little tour, and we'll stop in Virginia. What is of historic significance in Virginia to see about the Civil Rights Trail?
2: There are several places... Uh... If you don't have a lot of time, you need to go to Richmond, to the Capitol, and see a monument with young people from a small town in Virginia where the girl quotes her as saying it was like reaching for the moon. Hmm. Her uncle was a pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery before Martin Luther King, and he was encouraging her at age 16 back back in – Virginia, do something, do something, make a difference. And so she convinced all of the students in her small school, a black school with mostly tar paper buildings, to go on strike the next day because she hmm. they were not asking to go to the same schools as the whites. They just wanted equal rights. And so the county responded by shutting down all the schools for, for five years. Huh. And the Whites built new schools, but uh, there's a great picture of her uh, reaching up f- from her small town. And, and so if people don't have time to go to her hometown, which is near the Civil War battlefield where the war ended, but uh, going to Virginia is a real good place to start.
0: And, Lee, what town was that again?
2: Uh, that is in Farmville, Virginia. It's near Appomattox.
0: We'll explore the wild Arctic of Svalbard in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. But next, the head of one of the exhibits along the U.S. Civil Rights Trail tells us about a handful of student activists who helped change the segregation laws in North Carolina. It started at a Woolworth's lunch counter. We're looking at the significance of more than 100 sites, churches, schools, courthouses, even private homes across 15 states, mostly in the South places where countless women and men worked to dismantle the Jim Crow segregation laws, laws that kept black Americans as second-class citizens for generations. Our guest, Lee Antell, has been the director of tourism for the state of Alabama for more than 20 years. He's been telling us about his campaign to bring these sites together into what's being called the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. On our American History road trip, let's stop now in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's the site of the former Woolworth store, where a silent sit-in started on February 1, 1960. Four black students asked for coffee and donuts but were denied service. Within a few days, their attempt to take a seat and make a stand was joined by another 900 people. It took six months for the store manager to agree to serve black patrons. Eventually, they had to expand the size of the lunch counter to accommodate all the extra business. On the line to tell us more is John Swain. John's the chief executive officer of the International Civil Rights Center and Museum in Greensboro. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Rick. Yes, John, can you give us um, a a little description of why Greensboro, North Carolina would be on the civil rights trail?
1: Sure. Well, um, the International Civil Rights Center uh, is a place that reaches people across the globe, The F.W. Woolworth uh, building is the exact space where the F.W. Woolworth lunch counter sits to this day with 53 lunch counter seats, and it's inspired by the student-led movement. It was a leaderless movement, but a student-led movement that spread across the South and across the globe. It was nonviolent, and that was quite appealing to a number of people. It's a very inspirational place and uh, continues to be to this day.
0: You know, John, this whole idea about nonviolence, it is, for a lot of people, hard to get their brains around why that could be so powerful. But reading the account of these students who, day after day, courageously went into that lunch counter and sat down as if they were equal customers— Nonviolence really was powerful. Talk a little bit about how nonviolence triumphed in Greensboro, North Carolina.
1: Well, these students uh, were inspired by Gandhi, King, and Ikeda. The women at Bennett College had spent months planning the sit-in. They understood the power of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which guaranteed full and equal protections under the laws for all persons born or naturalized. We got our 14th Amendment in 1868 when 28 of 37 states ratified the 14th Amendment. So these students were studying and they knew that they were entitled to be treated as equals in society. Greensboro is a college town. We have, uh, Bennett college. Then there was women's college, now UNCG, A&T, Guilford College, and so forth. Uh, So you have to look at the makeup of this town to understand why it was such a successful event that went on for six months and a student-led movement. Greensboro is made up of a number of Quakers, Jewish people, black and white, and all of these groups understood what it meant to be oppressed. And I think all they needed to have done back then during that six-month time period is just refer to what it meant to be an equal citizen of society. So that's why this was so successful. no one was injured here. A lot of people think right. that the flour and the sugar and all of that stuff and the cigarette butts put out in heads yeah. took place in Greensboro. Though Those uh, violent actions took place in other places. Huh. It was a, a dangerous time, but these students were masterful at the planning.
0: I'm looking at the photograph right now in the book, and it's probably the fuzziest photograph in the whole book of these Students sitting at this whites-only lunch counter, but in a way, it's the most vivid photo in the book, fuzzy as it may be, because you see the the calm, dedication, the confidence, the courage. You just feel like history is changing right there.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Often people see the four black men sitting at the lunch counter and refer to them as the A and T four. Right. Uh, that photograph would have been taken on the second day of the movement. Right. The only image that we had from that time period uh, when the store would have closed on February 1 of 1960 was the four students, um, mm-hmm. David Richmond, Frank McCain, Joe McNeil, and Ezel Blair, standing outside of the Woolworths by the end of the day when they were denied service. And that would continue on for... Um, period of six months. But my favorite story of all, and I love to stand in front of young high schoolers and remind them of their power to change the world, Mm. Uh, especially when you refer to the students at James B. Dudley. In May, when college graduation occurred, those college students were gone for the summer. But the high school students at James B. Dudley stepped up, took over the movement, and came to this building every single day and and brought about a successful uh, end to the the lunch counter uh, segregation on July 25th of
0: 1960. And uh, what's that, 62 years later, it's still an inspiration. It's still getting traction John Swain, best wishes with your work as Chief Executive Officer of the International Civil Rights Center and Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina. Thank you for your contribution to the putting together of the Civil Rights Trail in our country. Uh, best wishes, John. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation.
0: Let's get back with Lee Tell right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lee's the Alabama Tourism Director, and he's joining us from the studios of our affiliate WBHM in Birmingham. Lee profiles the historic importance of these historic places in his book, The Official United States Civil Rights Trail. So, Lee, we're going on this road trip, you know, kind of blitzing through the south here, and next up is Nashville, Tennessee. What's the historical significance of a stop in Nashville for the Civil Rights Trail?
2: Nashville played a big part. It's, it's not as dramatic as maybe other cities because uh, they didn't have the violence, but they had a very powerful group of college students. There were black students who had an attorney uh, representing them trying to get equal rights, and the Klan bombed the home of their attorney. And so Diane Nash, a very bold young woman who is fortunately uh, still with us. She got 4,000 students to march downtown to meet with the mayor in front of the city hall and courthouse. And they marched silently, no singing, no chanting, just marched and confronted the mayor in front of his building. And she got into a discussion with him to try to get him to explain why blacks should not be able to go to the same schools or eat in the same restaurants. And he couldn't come up with a good answer. So mm-hmm. she said, and so you're saying then that that we should integrate uh, the downtown schools, uh, the, the downtown restaurants and stores. And he said, yes, I think we should. I mean, wow. boom, with one, something? with one argument. And she was recently given a major award by President Biden, She received it along with Fred
0: Gray, who was Rosa Parks' attorney
2: and Martin Luther King's attorney from Montgomery.
0: I feel so bad about how divided our country is, but I feel so good about how this interest in raising awareness and appreciation of the valor and the courage that made the civil rights movement possible actually feels like it brings people together. You're in Alabama. You're dealing with the reality of the fear and the long-term heritage and all the complexity of this. Do you see any ways that the civil rights trail is bridging the gap that separates so much of our country? When you look
2: back to the civil rights era, and when John Kennedy proposed and then Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it did an amazing amount of good for the country. This was right after all of the bombings in Birmingham, and right after some other actions, but Lyndon Johnson was able to persuade 73 senators to vote for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which really desegregated the country. Hmm. And the the fact that it was a higher percentage of Republicans than Democrats who voted for it, uh, I think makes you feel, okay, good things can happen if you work long and hard enough and try to get people to find common ground.
0: Yeah. And when you read through this, the story, what struck me is there is a lot of people whose names we don't know who were John Lewis in spirit. You don't need to be the head of the movement. You don't need to be a famous politician or, or a church leader in order to make a difference. There are examples of courage that really provide the bedrock of this whole movement Which is quite inspirational, uh, even after so many decades. Our next stop on our road trip is Memphis. And, of course, this is uh, a very important part of the trail because it's where Dr. King was murdered. What do travelers experience when they go to Memphis wanting to be more in touch with this whole civil rights story?
2: Memphis, I think, is the place where everybody should start their tour. The National Civil Rights Museum is the old Lorraine Motel where King was assassinated. It was the first civil rights museum in the country. And a few years ago, they raised more money and spent something like 25, 26 million dollars to reimagine the entire place. And it is done chronologically. When you start through the tour, Early on, you see the Edmund Pettus Bridge. You see a bus Mm -hmm. from the Rosa Parks era. So it's not just telling the story of what happened in Memphis, but it does a great job of orienting you to the various locations. And and there's a a lunch counter, like in Greensboro. It takes a good two hours to do the tour. Mm -hmm. And you are walking through these different whirls from different cities and then suddenly off to the right uh, you see it's like you're looking into the window of the room where dr king was staying that night oh yeah uh, there's some uh, cigarette butts uh, in the ashtray the beds unmade coffee cup half finished i mean it's like you walked into the moment right before it happened and it, it's breathtaking when suddenly uh, you're in that in that moment In recent years, they have upgraded the building across the alley, which is where the assassin pointed his rifle out the window and shot Dr. King as he was standing on the outside of his room, uh, about to go with friends to dinner.
0: Uh Uh-huh. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're uh, exploring the landmark moments and monuments of the Civil Rights Movement, all laid out on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. Our guest is the Director of Tourism from the state of Alabama, Lee Centel. Lee and his team were behind the campaign to create the Civil Rights Trail. And Lee has written a book about it, and it's called The Official United States Civil Rights Trail, What Happened Here Changed the World. Okay, so now we carry on, and we go to Kansas, Topeka. And uh, this is the, the site of the Brown v. Board of Education lawsuit. How do you humanize something like that? I mean, we've heard of the lawsuit that challenged school segregation, but a visit to Topeka really would help us humanize that.
2: That was the first place I went to sign books. It was the only place that I had not visited in doing my research. And so I felt like I owed Topeka uh, something because what they did in that community, uh, Linda Brown's father, and there were a handful of fathers and uh, students, you know they took a, a bold leap. Thurgood Marshall had five different lawsuits to work from. when he looked at the details that each one of those suits brought. some were about the money spent on schools, others were about the distance that people had to travel. and they picked the Topeka school suit. Because the argument that a black couple proposed to the school, they did a test. They had little white dolls, and they had black dolls. And separately, they let children pick the dolls that they wanted to play with. I don't know that history records what the white students did, but the black children wanted to play with white dolls. They didn't want to play with black dolls because they... The professor said that this illustrated how young black children didn't
0: feel that they were equal in worth to the white students. Mm -hmm. That's a poignant story. Lee, I wish I could talk long and long about this. There are so many interesting stops, but I'll just mention that we have 100 landmarks across 15 states. And I'd just like to finish off with a stop in Birmingham, which happens to be your state, Alabama. What? historical significance does Birmingham have for the Civil Rights Trail, and how, as travelers, might we have a a more vivid experience by visiting it? Birmingham now has an area that President Obama made a national monument.
2: So you've got the 16th Street Baptist Church, where four little girls were killed in 1963. Right next to that, you have the Gaston Motel, which was Martin Luther King's headquarters during the Birmingham movement but in in a pretty large sense i think most historians will agree that birmingham was sort of the the heart of what made people care about african americans certainly through the bombing of the the church
0: that was used as the headquarters for the marches lee it's such a great opportunity to be able to to share this i'm so thankful for for having you join us today on this interview in this in this very important uh, season can you just take a moment and think about perhaps the most inspirational single stop on the Civil Rights Trail, where, where we really have an opportunity to, to recognize the importance of Americans grappling honestly with our heritage and how travel to these spots can be a great first stop?
2: Well, Rick, you more than anybody can understand the appreciation of experience and the emotion of important stops Thank goodness for Ava DuVernay's movie Selma. People now come in large numbers in on buses to drive to Selma to walk across the Edmund Mm. Pettus Bridge because that symbolizes bravery and defiance uh, more than any other site. And a number of national guidebooks uh, pick Selma's Bridge now as one of America's uh, 10 greatest landmarks.
0: And Lee, the the photograph you chose for the cover of your book, of course it is the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and the angle, it invites you to walk over that arcing bridge. And then when you look deeper into the book, you find about the brutal welcome that awaits you over the crest of that bridge. And then you have to wonder, as a privileged white person, what would you do, what would I do, if those policemen with those clubs and those hateful faces were awaiting me on the other side of that bridge and to walk over that bridge it's something we all need to do they were they were brave people
2: they they knew that some of them were going to die mm. and the fact that they still went forward and you had hundreds and several thousand people who mm-hmm. would be involved in marches like that was is just uh you know we don't see that kind of bravery anymore
0: Well, it's an ongoing fight, and their valor is still getting traction to this day, in part thanks to people like you who are dedicated to making sure that we look at this with open and honest eyes. Lisa Intel, thank you for joining us, and thank you for writing Civil Rights Trail. Thank you so much. There's more in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Are you ready to be bitten by the polar bug on the Arctic archipelago of Svalbard? It's not a local bug there, but it's rather a term the locals use to describe that deep desire to return after landing there for your first time. It's frigid climate, Extreme light variations and the staggering natural beauty of its glaciers and fjords have been a draw for explorers and adventurers for generations and now for researchers and tourists as well. Ecologist and conservationist and bear enthusiast Chris Morgan goes to Svalbard once a year to lead an Arctic expedition for polar bears. Chris has worked as a wildlife researcher, wilderness guide, and environmental educator now for more than 30 years, and he's traveled to every continent where bears live. Chris joins us now in our studio to give a glimpse into Svalbard and its most iconic inhabitant, the polar bears. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Great to be here. So first of all, Svalbard, that's basically a Norwegian island halfway between the Norwegian mainland and the North Pole,
3: right? Exactly. Top of the world, basically. Top of
0: the world. Um, For someone who's never been there before, just describe it. What kind of world is that?
3: Um, It really does feel like the top of the world in more ways than one when you're up there. It's an icy landscape, you know, so you definitely feel the Arctic. One of my friends a few years ago described it in the best way I've ever heard. He said, if you sliced off the Swiss Alps, placed them in the Arctic Ocean, and sprinkled polar bears on them, you'd have Svalbard.
0: Well, I was just in the Alps, and it was way up there, and I guess you could park a boat about where I was right. up in Svalbard.
3: Yeah, and, and it's got, I think, about a billion years of uninterrupted geological history. Huh. So it's, it's literally like this sort of living landscape museum there. And about 60% of it is glaciers, you know, so it's highly glaciated. The biggest glacier in Europe is there. So mostly
0: ice, 3,000 people and uh, I guess the economy is, what, either coal mining and tourism? Is, is there
3: fishing or is it coal mining and tourism? Coal mining and tourism pretty much sums it up. It started with coal mining and then uh-huh. it's, it's transitioned quite rapidly to, to tourism for some of the reasons that you were explaining earlier on. It is a dynamic place where you just you feel this, it's funny to use the word magnetism, isn't it, when you're yeah. talking about the Arctic, but it has this magnetism to it where you, you go once and you want to go back. So I feel lucky. I get to go back fairly frequently. But you
0: go back not for the culture. You go back for the nature.
3: Yes. I suppose. Exactly.
0: I mean, I would imagine the commerce, if you got 3,000 people there, uh, is a couple of streets, a couple of hotels. uh, Is there like a gift shop, actually? Yes.
3: In fact, there's a whole strip of them now. (laughs) Because cruise ships are stopping there or something? They they do. They're limiting some of the sizes of the cruise ships. Uh So the smaller ships are preferred because it's less impactful on the wildlife and the environment there. But it has taken it off enough to be its own little industry and to employ a size of number of people there. So there's indigenous people. There's people who have always lived there, and they got not, to earn a living Not somehow. indigenous. There's no indigenous history there, interestingly oh, enough. Really? So, so okay. they're very much missing the sort of Inuit component that we have in North ah. America. Just to give you a sense from a North American perspective of, of how far north this is and how high up into the Arctic it is, it's about 550 miles further north than the north coast of Alaska.
0: Now, that's, that really... Puts it in because if you go to the north coast of Alaska, that seems pretty, pretty desolate. Yeah, livable but just barely. Right, and then you, you you split the distance from there to the North Pole. Yeah, and
3: you've got yourself Ice City exactly with polar bears. Yes, and the interesting thing is you're, you're able to access part of the archipelago of Svalbard, the eastern side mostly, mm. right. because of the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream comes across the Atlantic, heads north, and becomes the oh. Norwegian current that keeps it ice-free a little so that earlier. the core, Exactly. So oh. you can get in, you can access it a little more easily there. So the east side of the islands is usually locked in ice quite a lot longer each year.
0: I understand it's part of Norway, but it's there's some fine points there where you can actually go to Svalbard and live there or work
3: there or whatever without the same red tape you'd have to go to Norway? I think so. I've heard the same thing. Um, yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but it, but it is a sovereignty of Norway, and uh-huh. I think they have looser regulations for sure. So you get really interesting mix of different nationalities there. There's a lot of people from the Philippines there, and there's Thai families there, and they've made a life in the north, which is kind of unexpected. It is interesting, isn't yeah. it? I talked about the polar bug, and uh, apparently that's a
0: desire to go back to a place like Svalbard. What is the polar bug? I,
3: I think the Arctic and the polar regions and the animals that are there have this magical essence to them, this mystical essence to them, where you can't feel it and sense it and understand it till you've got boots on the ground or boots in a boat on the water. It does. It does feel like uh, um, something that you don't experience anywhere else. So it has this quality that feels different, feels magical and mystical, and has a draw that wants you to keep coming back. Because you might initially land in a place like Svalbard and think, oh, it's a barren wasteland. A lot of people think of the Arctic in that way. There's nothing here. Right. Why protect it? Why appreciate it? Why visit it? You know, But you don't have to spend much more than 24 hours in a place like it to really start to understand it and what unfolds. One of the things up in Svalbard is that it is, in the summer, it's a land of perpetual light. It's like a, a, a day that is four months long. Ah. The sun comes up in April right. and doesn't set, not, a, not a, a, an inch below the horizon until August. So for four months, it's bright and sunny usually, you know, blue sky and the midnight sun. And you have these long days which throw you off, but it's one of those magical things. And it gives you lots of time to explore. And every little thing that you discover, whether it's a bear or a walrus, or a bird colony, these massive colonies of millions of birds descend on this place every year. There's something that makes you want to find out a little bit more, see a little bit more, and as you're discovering things, you realize there's a lot more than meets the eye to a place like this.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Morgan, and he's helping us explore the Arctic outpost and polar bear haven of Svalbard, halfway between the top of Norway and the North Pole. Chris is the host of The Wild with Chris Morgan. It's a podcast about wildlife, conservation, and the wonders of our wild planet. His website is chrismorganwildlife.org. Now, Chris, you go there once a year, just to, to do to lead a tour. I would imagine you're there generally during that four-month-long day. Yes, ex- exactly. Yeah. So you've probably rarely July. seen you've probably rarely seen <laughs> darkness in Svalbard even though you go there
3: every year. That's it. I've never been there in the dark. I'm, yeah, I've never <laughs> thought never about You've never been there in the dark. I've never had an, a real night in Svalbard. Now, no. my <laughs>
0: experience in the north of Norway is it's a real headache when the sun wakes you up at four o'clock in the morning. Yes,
3: you have eye, eye blinds and, and uh, some people take travel uh, sleeping tablets, you know, yeah. and, and uh, to well, help them through. I bet hotels have good blackout uh, shades. They, they really do. They're, they're primed for it. Tell me a little bit more.
0: There's probably basically one community with 3,000 people, and that's a springboard for the nature-loving that goes on up there.
3: Exactly. Longyubian is the name of the town, really the only functioning town there. There's science research communities. There's still some uh, um, coal mining communities as well, and the original coal mining communities were Russian, actually. But now it's mostly Longyubian, and it is this hub for the tourism there, but it's a real operating town as well. Uh, it's very colorful. The buildings, like in a lot of Arctic towns, the long winter nights are as long as the long summer days, right? So they have these very colorful buildings there that I think are designed to bring a little bit of life and zest to the place. So, so very... if you
0: did go in the middle of the winter, you'd be like walking around with street lamps.
3: Exactly. In the middle of the day. And the northern lights lighting up And way. the northern lights. Yeah.
0: Fiery green spikes of light that go from the horizon.
3: Yes. I have a friend, one of my co-guides over there, And he does uh, dog sled trips in the winter under the northern lights in Svalbard, uh, which would be amazing. I've never experienced it, but he's told me many stories.
0: How do you get there? It must be, you must have to go to Norway and then leap off from there. Is there regular commercial flights up there?
3: Yes, you fly into Oslo, and then Uh Oslo, uh, not direct to Longyearbyen in Svalbard, but you fly via Tromsø. Okay. You jump off the plane at Tromso, which is on the tippy top. Uh, Tromso is kind of
0: like the the, um, the city of the north in Norway, I guess. Right. Yeah,
3: and it's it's just it's the wildest feeling, feeling like okay, here I am in Tromso, the north coast of Norway, and I've still got a long flight to go northwards before I get it's to incredible. my destination. Yeah, because yeah.
0: for most people, Nordkap, the the very top northern cliff of the Norwegian mainland, is is the end of the world. Right. <laughs> but it's not the end of the world. In fact, you wrote that Svalbard has the northernmost civilian settlement in the world, yes, uh, with the northernmost everything going on there. But I guess when you say civilian settlement, that's kind of implying there are non-civilian settlements further north.
3: Yes. It's it's an important research base for scientists. So there's Uh a couple of places that that are like that in in some of the the isolated fjords. Because it's on the front end of Arctic research there, you know, the impacts of climate change and habitat loss and how these polar bears and other species are reacting to our changing planet, and, it's, and it's, they're on the front end of that research there.
0: Chris Morgan's telling us what he's been finding in the Svalbard Archipelago in the High Arctic, where he leads wildlife viewing expeditions. Chris also hosts and narrates a number of wildlife TV shows, and his podcast is The Wild with Chris Morgan. His documentary films include Bear Trek and The Path of the Bear. We have links to his work at ricksteves.com radio. Now, you're pretty well-known for your passion for bears. You study bears all over the world, and you you track the, the challenges and the ups and downs of the polar bear community all across the north. If there were no polar bears in Svalbard, would you ever go to Svalbard?
3: Oh, I think my pause actually uh, gives the answer away, doesn't it? Uh, It would be a lot less of a draw. (laughs) I mean, Ah. I I can't even imagine a world without polar bears, but I'm having to these days, right? You know, because you think... You think about the impact on these creatures that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years in places like this. A place like the high Arctic that's had ice on it for two and a half million years consistently. And that ice is disappearing quickly and with it the polar bears potentially. So the idea of a Svalbard without polar bears is, is, is a hard one it's for me to get my head around. kind of because you're saying yeah. it'd be an
0: Arctic without polar
3: bears. Exactly, yeah.
0: But the attraction of the of the island is in part because it's a springboard for you Studying polar bears, but also you as a guide, introducing other people to polar bears, and maybe they'll get that, that polar bug in the sense of having an empathy for the struggle of the polar bears. Exactly, as a, as a yeah. kind of a, they're sort of the what do you call it, the canary in the mine shaft uh, up in the Arctic for climate change, aren't they? Uh, they
3: absolutely now, are. Now, how
0: so? Because you hear about that. And, and why are the polar bears special in regards to keeping an eye on climate change?
3: That's a great question because you, you do see them everywhere. When it, every climate change poster or project or mission is, is accompanied by a photograph of a yeah. polar bear on an iceberg. Is it just because you know.
0: they tug at your heartstrings like little koala bears or something well, like I that? Well, I think
3: partly that. They're these charismatic megafauna, right, that, that we call them, damn, and grizzly bears and other creatures around the world. Yeah. These charismatic megafauna are amazing flagships. For, for the places where they live and charismatic,
0: charismatic megafauna. So that I'm just flora and fauna. Okay, so flora is vegetation. Yeah. Fauna is animals. Yes. These are megafauna. So that would be the bigger animals. Instead of a marmot, which is not a megafauna.
3: Right. Lovely as they are, marmots are not charismatic Because yeah, little cuddly
0: things are more charismatic. Maybe. So this is a big megafauna yes. that has charisma.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Nice. So you can attach. Messages to them and conservation missions because people are drawn to them. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue there's no cuter creature on the on the planet Earth than a polar bear cub, for example. So, so there is that heartfelt side of the the, the heartstrings that you're talking about. But there's also something else, and it's the practicalities of the of the ecology here that the polar bears live every day. In Svalbard, it's a five step ecosystem. It's very simple, but also very fragile. And that five step ecosystem all starts with ice. On the ice, on the underside of the sea ice, grows algae. That algae is eaten by zooplankton. That zooplankton is eaten by polar cod. The polar cod is eaten by the seals, and the polar bears eat the seals. So if you were to take any one of those little jigsaw pieces out, the system would collapse, and there would be no polar bears, and it all starts with ice. There'd be no fish, there'd be no polar bears, there'd be no seals, nothing in that chain would exist if it wasn't for the ice and the algae growing on it.
0: I didn't dream that ice was part of a food chain. Mm. There's actually algae growing under the ice.
3: Yes. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And it all starts there. And when the
0: ice is gone, the whole thing falls down. Yeah. It's a house of cards built on
3: ice. That's exactly it.
0: Oh, my goodness. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Morgan. And Chris is helping us explore and understand the Arctic outpost in polar bear haven of Svalbard, Norway. Chris is an ecologist, a conservationist, a filmmaker, and wilderness guide with a focus on bears and the environment worldwide. You can find out more about the projects that Chris is working on at his website. It's chrismorganwildlife.org. Chris, we're talking about polar bears being threatened by climate change, and as a traveler and a travel writer and somebody who cares about the environment, I find myself collecting physical visual examples of why climate change is not something that may happen, but it's here right now. You've been going to Svalbard for for years. How have you seen the environment change, and, and what indicates to you, in the context of Svalbard, that climate change is actually here?
3: Just given that Svalbard is this land of ice, it, it's a tenuous-feeling place. It's made up of massive mountains and rock, and but over it, these ice caps form, and they are shrinking all the time. And we all hear about shrinking ice, but you notice it's so much there. In fact, you know, when we're, when we're sailing around the archipelago on the ship, we have marine charts, the old-fashioned paper charts, right mm. next to all the high-tech maps on the computers and laptops mm. – Looking at those maps, you can see where the ice char- where the ice charts used to be. So you go into a fjord, and uh, uh, a fjord used to be filled with ice, even six, seven, eight years ago, can be miles back now. They've retreated miles, and so it's a very quick thing that has happened. The glaciers are nowhere to be seen. No, and these are on the maps, on the bridges of the ships that we use there. How poignant. It really is, to the point where some of the captains are literally nervous to go into these fjords because their maps oh. tell them not to. These, these fjords are massive, and so the glaciers that fill them are huge as well. Some of them are 8 or 10 miles wide, these glaciers, and 40 miles long, you know, and, I, and, and they're shrinking on all sides. I would imagine everybody on Svalbard is clued into
0: the environment because they're in the midst of this ongoing tragedy.
3: I think you're right. You do see it and you feel that sense when you're there. Uh, People are living right on that front line of climate change every day. And I think you feel it very much when we're out. We take out Zodiac boats, which are semi-inflatable rigid hulled boats, right? So you can fit eight or ten people into them and you get really close to the real world there. Sometimes we actually go on land as well. So what's that like? You're
0: going to take me on a little excursion because I'm in your group, and we pile into this inflatable zodiac.
3: Yeah, and uh, we go cruising, and oftentimes it's in a a fjord that's filled with ice of various sizes and shapes There's actually words for
0: that, isn't there? You've got, what, icebergs, but then there's small ones. Yes. What are the small ones?
3: Bergy bits. Bergy bits. Doesn't sound very technical. No, but that's the technical name, isn't it? Bergy bits. Then you've got pancake ice, and then you've got... pack ice, then you've got multi-year ice, single-year ice, all see, these different where I terms. Live, there's one, there's one word for ice. <laughs>
0: it's called ice. But if you lived in Svalbard, you'd have a whole vocabulary, a whole list of words for
3: ice. Yes, yeah. One of the most important ones is the fast ice. And the fast ice is sea ice, so it's frozen salt water that is attached to the land. And that's exactly where you'll find the ringed seals. The uh-huh. ringed seals use breathing holes in the fast ice to come up and breathe. And they have four or five of these holes It's strategic because they know that at one of those holes, a polar bear might be waiting for them. And when it is, it's lights out for the seal usually. So they have to have lots of different holes to go to in this fast ice. So we'll cruise through on the Zodiac boat. And the other thing that really strikes you is the sound. It's this kind of... And it's the sound of, of bubbles bursting from the glacial ice that you're cruising through as it's released and melting in the seawater. And the crazy thing is that some of those bubbles were formed 10,000 years ago at the base of a glacier. So we'll often hook them out into the boat, crack them open with, a, with an ice axe, and, and there's nothing better than 10,000-year-old ice and a glass of scotch when you get back to the ship. Oh, my goodness, a little briggy
0: bit in your scotch. <laughs> yes, yeah. Ah, it must be
3: so gratifying for you
0: as a tour guide and a person so passionate about the environment to take people who are so sheltered from the the dramatic changes that are going on right to the front lines.
3: Yes, definitely. I, it's one of my greatest pleasures is to take people to these places and firsthand inspire them and see the tears in their eyes and understand why these places are important that we all need to protect and care for. It's my whole mission in life, you know. The trips are wonderful but if it doesn't result in some bigger appreciation and a big step towards the right mission for people and planet then it's It's not worthwhile, right? So you've you've always got to focus on that side of it.
0: And by the way, at your website, chrismorganwildlife.org, you really give people a vivid peek at what you're talking about. Thanks so much for all you're doing, Chris, and best wishes. Thanks so much, Rick. I appreciate it. Someday we'll have a a nice drink with a little bit of iceberg in it. I like that idea. And we'll celebrate how we've turned the corner on climate change and the polar bears are doing fine.
3: Here's to that.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatten, Kaz hall and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. And our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests, listen to a podcast version of the show, and search the archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with another Travel with Rick Steves.